1874, the British government passed a series of laws called the Regulation of Public Worship. What? A lot of people cared an awful lot about church back then. True. On one side, people wanted more ritual and ceremony. Order. Order. On the other side, they wanted mostly none. Yeah. In the midst of the battle, one minister, a rector in London at a church called St. George in the East, had stopped a practice Whoa. whereby people who volunteered in church services could avail themselves of liquor from the rector's cupboard before and after the service. The Reverend King closed the cupboard. We have opened it again. Welcome to the rector's cupboard. Order. Welcome to the rector's cupboard. This is chapter three, episode four, with all of your heart and none of your mind, intellectual consideration and Christian faith. Joining us in just a little bit will be uh, Richard Topping, principal at VST, uh, Theological Seminary here in Vancouver. And we're on the campus of UBC right now at VST. Glad to be here. And joining me today are Allison Williams. Hello, Allison. Hey. And Ken Bell. Hello, Todd. So I thought we'd start our conversation today with something that's been in the news a little bit recently, maybe more than a little bit, and that has to do with movies, more particularly has to do with Marvel movies, of which I've seen maybe two. Uh, and I've seen them all at least once, most Good. of them two or three times. And Allison, you're probably somewhere mm, in the middle. A handful. So, uh, uh, yeah. And so what's happened recently is the most recent one that I heard was Francis Ford Coppola. But before that, it was Martin Scorsese. And there's been others who've come up. Yeah, and, and said uh, Marvel movies are ruining cinema. Uh, they're just, you know, base or whatever. So uh, why don't you just chime in? What do you think about that? Is that fair criticism or what are they saying? No, I don't, I mean, they're there for pure entertainment. They're there for escapism, which is no different than uh, the studio movies of the 30s, 40s, and 50s, of the uh, serial films that used to go to in the 60s and stuff, uh, Star Wars, James Bond movies. It's all escapism. It's not meant to be a head scratcher or change your life when you walk out, and that's okay. But there's a lot of people like, as I say, Coppola, Scorsese, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but they're saying some really harsh things about these movies that, that not only are they kind of useless and despicable or whatever language they would use, but they're also saying that they're, they're hurting cinema in general, and so I guess they're saying they well, shouldn't be made. Yeah, I wonder whether um, in the current context of film and stuff, whether just the sheer volume of them pushes out other movies or whether there's some sort of responsibility that as a director they say we should be making more thoughtful movies than this and if we don't force that then audiences are going to just want to have this cheap easy how many classical consumer. radio station class classical music radio stations are there versus pop radio stations I mean, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's the same sort of thing. People, people are going to the things they want to go to. And yeah, it's escapism and it's mostly meaningless, but it's, I mean. So what would you say as someone who does like the movies? I, I didn't say I like the movies. Oh. I said I've seen them all at least <laughs> twice. I think he has children who like the movies. What would you, say, though, what would you say and a wife. is valid about the criticism? What are, what are they getting at? I think they're saying that there ought to be more to, cinema offers an, does offer, offer an opportunity to make people think, make people walk out and go, uh, like when you walk out of a film like Schindler's List or something like that, you walk out and and hopefully in some good films your worldview can be changed, your right. perspective of things. And that's can not going to happen with a Marvel. That's not going to happen with a Marvel movie, but that's okay. I also watch some ridiculous you know comedy shows that 
that's not the purpose of them, but some dramas, that is the purpose. So Bill Maher says, you referenced Bill Maher earlier. Yes, I did. Bill Maher, and this was a number of months ago, but his He wasn't criticism, trying to be controversial, was he? Well, he wasn't talking oh, about never. movies. He was talking about Stan Lee, particularly, who I take it wrote Marvel Comics or something. Yeah. Right? yeah. And yeah. is a real almost cult figure in that yes. subculture. And he died, and then after he died, and this is the controversial part, Bill Maher getting the press, uh, said, uh, well, you know, I don't really mourn this loss. I don't think we should be kind of, you know, having, you know, in state or, you know, like, like big gatherings to mourn this guy because what he did was basically distract adults from something useful in the world by getting them interested in comics and that whole world rather than, I mean, is there something valid there? I think it depends on your perspective because, I mean, I know some people who, you know, they're, they're from, they had, like, their adolescence and, like, early young adulthood in, like, the 80s and the 90s, like, really big comic book old kind people. of people. Yeah, really, <laughs> Sorry. Um, and they, they love their, it's, it's like a hobby for them, whereas someone who might do, like, woodworking or something like that spends time with that craft or reading on some subject, they just, they find that this is something else that's interesting for them. It's not particularly interesting for me, but I don't know necessarily how to make those judgments between somebody who likes to read comic books and might, you know, really, really like to read them. Do some people take it super, super seriously, though? And like, but really you get that in it? everything. Oh, yeah. Yes. Have you seen Comic Cons? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, they, so the question I sometimes wonder about is you have, uh, like, I remember I'll, also I'll read a novel now or I'll read, you know, and sometimes I think, am I wasting time? Whether whatever it is reading, it doesn't have to be a novel, it can be something else. And then I'll think of like old religious culture that I wasn't necessarily a part of, but I do know about from from reading or that if you read a novel that would be considered frivolous or distracting or mm -hmm. not you should be thinking about god right. that's what you should be thinking about not not this kind of useless stuff so now this would be the extreme where yeah. like you can enter the world of marvel comics and just immerse yourself in that i i think there are there is and, and I'm not going to overplay this. I think the vast majority of it is for just escapism and entertainment. But there, there is a storyline in the Marvel comics, and there is the constant battle of the, the tortured hero. The heroes realize to be the hero isn't necessarily a great thing. To be the hero is, is uh, it's complex. You're hurting things. You're destroying things. Um, you don't want to be the hero. And a lot of the movies have also begun to move into humanizing the, 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 the enemy, the yeah. villain. Yeah, we mentioned talking about it with Maleficent a, or whatever. The, yeah, the kids they have a backstory, or the jo Joker movie now. They have a backstory. They weren't just born evil to be evil for the sake of evil. Um, so are you supposed to be sympathetic to these characters? I think you're supposed to realize that life is more complex than just the surface. And yeah, they don't go into it a lot, but each of the Marvel superheroes has some sort of torture soul to them, which I think is meant to engage us. So I don't think it's, I don't think they're as meaningless as the uh, Hallmark movies. Sorry uh, for those who love the Never Hallmark Never seen movies. a Hallmark movie. Yeah, seen a Hallmark well, movie? I've seen more than okay. my fair share again. Uh, but oh. there's... I'm getting you watch a lot those, of movies. You watch a lot of Marvel movies and a and lot, lot of Hallmark, Hallmark movies. movies. I really love my <laughs> wife. Uh, so I, I just think that yeah, I, I think that they, they, there's, there, there is some level of complexity and story there that is engaging. And I think there's a sense of hope. People look to the superhero because the world is crashing down, there's enemies coming, and yet there's someone here to champion us, to rescue us, but to redeem us. But you also said... There's the Jesus character. It's just escape. Some of whom die. Mm. Oh, yeah, there's definitely the thing of sacrifice in many of these. I, Absolutely. From, from what I've heard. That, yeah. 
So, it, and so we're on the campus of we're on our university. But they're campus not hybrid. at a theological school. You said they're just escape, which is true. To Mostly some escape. So if you're a student here and you're studying for your MDiv or something, and you're, it might feel like real escape to go see a Marvel movie, and just feel great when you should have been studying or whatever because it gives you a mental break, right? But perhaps there, um, the Wonder Woman movie was uh, not just a piece of escape. I mean, students around here talked about that, talked about the role of women in society. Now here was a leading role played by a woman right. in an important, uh, so it had a way of kind of elevating and drawing attention to it was, who can be It was a role. DC movie, not a yeah. Marvel movie, and it was the oh, only good oh, DC movie, okay. but anyways. No, okay, so Richard. <laughs> Marvel life. <laughs> if, or you could mention, now, is this a Marvel movie, Black Panther? Yes, yes. that is. Okay, so same thing with Black yes, Panther in terms of a different Well, they've called to higher kind of conversations. Looking to have those. some kind of yeah. social yeah, yeah. So, so the role, the, uh, to kind of expand the repertoire of who could be the hero, who could be the, the leading character, that yeah. kind mm -hmm. of thing. So it might not have been Marvel, but people thought it was Marvel-less. <laughs> yeah. Now, if we, if we oh. move, we're going to move in a minute to our kind of theological conversation. So... Uh, one of the things we're talking about with Marvel movies is that, and I would think that some of the criticism from these directors is that they are built to just draw a crowd. They're made to have as many people come as possible. They're money-making machines. They're whatever. And this criticism that uh, you know these are just for the masses. So if we move from considering that in terms of movies to considering that in terms of church and theology, religious enterprise and gathering, that there is this distinction between something uh, intelligent, maybe intellectual, something that has some spiritual formation to it, or simply something that tries to gather the biggest crowd. And so we'll, we're going to move to talk about right. that in general. But I want to introduce our guest for this episode of the podcast. Uh, Dr. Richard Topping is with us, and we're kind of in his neighborhood and his house across the street from his, or across the hall from his office. <laughs> and... Uh, here on the campus of UBC at Vancouver School of Theology. And I just want to tell you a little bit about Richard before we engage in conversation, actually before we have our tasting. Richard has his uh, BA in Religious Studies from the University of Waterloo and his MA and PhD from Wycliffe. Uh, PhD work was done with John Webster, who many would uh, know as an internationally renowned theologian. Richard spent a number of years, how many years, Richard? At, uh, uh, in Montreal? Uh, 13 years at the Church of St. Andrew and St. Paul. So St. Andrew and St. Paul, which I have a note here that that congregation, unlike many Presbyterian churches in Canada, was made up of a number of people, mostly people under 40. Uh, well, the new people that joined over the course of about 10 years, the majority would have been under 40, and a very traditional place. So was this attached to a campus itself? or uh, near Right or? across the street from Concordia University and three blocks from McGill. Okay, and so it's still obviously going now? It is. And do you get a chance to visit there? Or? I was there visiting this past weekend. Oh, fantastic. I preach from time to time there. It's a thriving place. Yeah. Nice. So if it's a thriving church in the Presbyterian Church in Canada, that is by its nature exceptional, is it not? <laughs> He's nodding. Okay. <laughs> Our guest is nodding. Yeah, that's, that question sounded terrible, didn't it? I didn't actually mean it to, to sound that way. But that's what's... What's interesting about it is that it's doing well. It's attracting young people. Um, and so, uh, so in 13 years at uh, St. Andrew and St. Paul, and now a professor of, uh, and a professor of studies in the Reformed tradition for 10 years, 
teaching and then six years here as principal at VST. Correct, six of those 10, so I've been here for, I'm into my 11th year at, uh, uh, associated with the Vancouver School of Theology. Wow. And in that time, this is great news as well, in that time, uh, enrollment has doubled. The school has moved from its old building, kind of old stone mansion type building, to a newer, uh, more functional building uh, right in the same neighborhood. And uh, you have also, there's seven of 12 profs or, or new profs, what would that mean? In the mean? last like, five years, yeah. Last five years. So that, what does that turnover look like? How does that feel to you? Well, I mean, it's a real opportunity to change a direction when you're moving a school and you have new leadership involved, new teaching. It was a real chance to invigorate the school with uh, new kind of energy. And, uh, you know, by selecting the, 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 the kinds of professors that are able to blur boundaries, we've mm -hmm. been able to be a school that's attractive to a larger constituency, even while we serve the one that we were sort of founded Anglican United Presbyterian students. Uh, one of the growth areas of the school is really w around, what would I call them, sojourner evangelicals, mm. uh, people f who have affinity to the mainline church on the sort of justice and social issues, but whose uh, interest in justice and social issues is rooted in their faith in Christ and their mm. Trinitarian understanding of God. So this, this school, like traditionally, you talk about mainline, so we're talking about United, Anglican, and Presbyterian mm -hmm. for people who, yeah, so uh, Ken and I went to Regent College and have master's degrees from there. My first class at Regent College was in 1992, so that's in the era of like James Packer and, and uh, Houston and others that, uh, so kind of, golden age, I guess, of Regent College, you'd say. But I remember as a, as a young student there, uh, one of the first times that VST was referred to, so this is well before your time, and this is a podcast, so I can say this, but in a lecture, you might remember this too, Ken, mm -hmm. in a lecture, um, Dr. Packer referred to VST as the Vancouver School of Demonology. Yeah. That this, and, and I think what he's identifying is that this break was there, that that was the mm -hmm. mainline, not Christian, you know, um, I, I don't fully know exactly what he meant. I'm, I'm anticipating that what he meant was kind of this is where kind of orthodox stuff is at Regent and VSD. Now that has clearly sure. changed. I think what Packer probably meant is I'm more conservative than they are. Yeah. Right. It's a kind of <laughs> dramatic and rhetorical flourish for uh, Oh, fantastic. So, so in your time here, we're just getting to that enrollment has doubled, the school has moved, these new profs have been hired, and there's this shift that tuition... Uh, revenue is is way up and these are things that you know for me to just say these things they sound like good news but for a theological school that's quite huge again exceptional theological schools in general are not at a time in their lives right now where they're increasing is that fair to say I mean you that's would, true so this would be one of the few theological schools that's experiencing growth that's true okay yes. Um, and that you've had a, and right now, is it right now that, that you have the largest incoming class this fall uh, that you've had in over 20 years? Yeah, it's the largest incoming uh, number of students, around 50 new students enrolled this fall. I mean, the thing to remember is in the past, if you had 50 students, they were all full-time. Now right. when you have 50 students, most of them aren't full-time. Right. And a lot of that has to do with how theological education is now available online. So we have sort of hybrid classroom situations where you have, you know, 30 people in the class and then another 20 on the wall. Right. Um, if people my generation are listening, it looks like Hollywood Squares, but that won't <laughs> make sense to everyone. I remember. You can find that on YouTube. <laughs> Thank you for explaining for me. Yeah. 
Uh, well, we're really pleased to be here. And, and so having been here for 11 years, I'm taking it you enjoy the work. I do. You yes. see it as, as something that is uh, uh, useful within the community in general and Christian community, maybe I, just. I love the work. I mean, imagine getting up in the morning um, and you know your chief anxiety as the principal of a theological school is where are we going to put everybody? I mean, mm. we're really taxing the limits of this building in terms of how mm. many students. If it wasn't for online students, we simply couldn't accommodate that number of bodies in the building we have. Wow. And our anniversary, our 50th anniversary, VST was founded in 71, but our 50th anniversary is coming up in 2021. And we thought we were going to have the luxury of choosing a project for our anniversary year. The project has chosen us. We need more space. Yeah. So it's a good problem to have. It sure is. It's better than getting out of the bed in the morning and wondering, well, where is everybody? Right, right. Mm -hmm. My chief worry is where we're going to put them all, which is delightful. It's, uh, it's the problem we've been praying for. And it provides, right. it's actually an interesting bridge to the conversation in general, having because you could say what you've just said certainly about theological institutions, you know, where is everybody? But you could say that also about church in general. And so the problem of where we're going to put everybody is something that, and yet this is an intellectual endeavor, large degree, to what you're doing. So you have both religion mm -hmm. and kind of the academy, mm -hmm. intellectual kind of endeavor, yes. and yet people are interested. So yes. it's... Well, one of the reasons we, like we moved from a building that looks like a castle and we, we, we've refurbished what was a residence. And so the students can sleep where they've always slept. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of our professors joked that when we moved out of a castle to this building, it's a lot easier to teach post-colonial theology when you're not doing it in a castle. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> um, but, but one of the things we wanted to do was to kind of uh, set an example for our church partners. Um, we, we had an overcommitment to infrastructure. We had this huge building using about a third of it, and much of the principal's work was arranging for people to rent space. Uh, our, right. our money was invested in infrastructure. So what do we do? We sold the building and realized the, the, the capital that was invested in the building. Now we're using it for mission and ministry. We started a foundation mm. and it funds theological education. It will be a gift to people who come after us. So right. we tried to observe you know, the commandment, thou shalt not steal, by not stealing from the future mm. in order to fund the mm. present, but actually to gift what we're doing into the future. And to be fair, the old Castle Seminary is so a seminary of sorts, only for yeah. finance and it's business, commerce. right? Yeah. It's commerce now. Oh, there was a great discussion about that in the media. How do I feel about a school that used to be a school of theology becoming a school of economics? And I said, well, economists are a lot like Christians. You're proud of some of them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, we're very glad that you've joined us in it. It's, uh, it's great for us to hear about the life of this place and some of these hopes that you have into the future, and even the way you speak about uh, what you're doing now uh, moves us to our general context of just hopefulness in general in terms mm -hmm. of faith and, and in uh, society as a whole. Um, we're going to move to the Rector's Cupboard portion. We are. And uh, we, we have something a little bit different today. We have um, Akvavit from Deep Gove Distilleries, which is in North Vancouver. Uh, Akvavit uh, means the water of life. Mm -hmm. It's uh, primarily Scandinavian. 
uh, is the area of the world that it comes from. And it's, it's kind of like their version of a, of a vodka or something like that. Uh, you can drink it by itself. You can mix it into cocktails. And we're like 10, 20 in the morning, so it's a breakfast drink? It's, it's a breakfast the, yeah. drink. <laughs> Close and, enough to noon, right? And uh, usually it has things like caraway or dill or orange peel in it to give it a little bit of uh, flavor and depth. This particular one has been barrel-aged. Uh, but it's, it's just something a little bit different. And it's been around since the 1500s. Um, it is what the Vikings used to, yeah. to drink when they were uh, pillaging and, and, and taking over places. So as we <laughs> consider uh, theology <laughs> and colonization and uh, all that sort of thing, we will, uh, we will enjoy the, the Aquavit. Um, you can really get the flavors of the vanilla and the caraway and the... But, Producer uh, Rick. And, yeah, but it can be, uh, like most things, it can be simple, it can be complex. Some people will love it, some people will hate it. Uh, and it is all, which is a lot like whether it's Marvel movies versus <laughs> deep intellectual artsy movies in cinemas of 12 people, or religious gatherings, church gatherings, where you have thousands of people versus 50 yeah. people. Uh, somewhere in between uh, is, is, is that tension of what is good. So what do and, you think? Uh, this to me is good. I like it. It's very whiskey-esque. Mm -hmm. Is it? Okay. I feel nice and toasty inside. It does yeah. feel warm, doesn't it? It does I, feel warm. I mean, when you think of it as Scandinavian, I was yeah. like, ooh, I feel like it should be like, snowing outside when we're drinking this. It's, it's, it's different. You, yeah, you get the caraway and you get, it's, it's also considered a digestif, so it helps you with your, Sorry, it's, it's, helping me to digest, <laughs> it's helping me to digest, Just digest my morning coffee, coffee and scone. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, and it's the kind of thing you bring to somebody and say, I got you Aquavit. And right. You look like you, you know look like you know something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It looks lovely too. The color mm. is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, kind of a golden color, and yes, like it's, it. it's nice. Mm -hmm. So, but I thought it's it's a good thing to bring to talk about something uh, intellectually highbrow. We're not having we're not we're not having Budweiser it, or it does. Uh, we're never having Budweiser, yellowtail right? wine or. It does seem like intellectually a little bit. This, and I thought since we're having a conversation on whether or not Christians ought to use their mind in faith or not. It seemed mm. like an appropriate drink to use. Wonderful. So that's so why we brought it into the Rector's Cupboard. We've yeah. opened the Rector's Cupboard, and, and now we'll be enjoying this Aqua Vit uh, as we continue our conversation with uh, Richard Topping, the principal here at uh, Vancouver School of Theology. So Richard, uh, tell us what you would like to about your story, how you got to be principal here at the Theological Seminary. We've done a little bit of the bio, but give us a sense of your own kind of professional uh, movement to get to this place. Yeah, um, a friend of mine just wrote a, a biography of his life, Will Williman, called Accidental Preacher. And uh, having read that book, <laughs> I sort of think of myself as an accidental principal. Um, how did I get here? I mean, I was in a large downtown church. The expectation is I'd probably there, be there for the rest of my life. I mean, at this church, mm -hmm. in Presbyterian churches, the leadership is with elders, and there were 60 of them. So to, oh. and most, 60 mo elders. About half of them were CEOs of ma major corporations, leaders in business, music in the community. That's a church. That's, that's and, bigger than many uh, <laughs> churches. It was, uh, it was intimidating. When I first went in to conduct my first meeting, everybody sits in a certain kind of chair in this oak panel 
whole room. And then there's a separate chair wow. for the minister. Drinking Akvavi. And when I sat in the minister, <laughs> when I sat in the minister's chair, my feet didn't touch the ground. <laughs> I often have that problem. Yeah. I have very short legs. And I thought, big job, small minister. Uh, but but that, but that that was really really important and formative. You know, I learned a great deal from business leaders about how to use people's time wisely to get things mm. done, right. and how to trust people who are doing a job that you've asked to do, and and taking that trust seriously. So I think I really learned leadership skills that are important to galvanizing a group to getting yeah. things done. And I learned from people who knew what they were doing. I came here to teach theology because one day my wife said to me, Richard, if you don't teach theology before the end of your life, you will have missed your calling. Uh, mm. That's powerful. I didn't. Mm -hmm. I didn't come here for the money. I didn't come here for some uh, elevation um, or anything like that. I did it because I love to teach. Do, theology. Does that resonate with you? Like, if she said that, She's that's right. something you felt as well. She's right. Uh, when she said it to me, I cried. Mm. So mm. she, my wife, she was obviously onto something. Yeah, yeah, she. She's been watching me. And have you experienced that you enjoy teaching theology? Love it. It's okay. uh, it's one of the things I've held on to when I've become an administrator. I always teach one course in the fall for students who are coming in and one course in the spring for students who are finishing. That way I can see the value added of a theological mm. education and keep in touch with the students. I, I became the principal here after teaching theology for four years because my colleagues, when the position became empty, encouraged me to do it. Um, and mm. you know you need the support of your colleagues to do it. That and how shall I say this uh, kindly? Um, uh, it's a calling that began out of a fear of who might do it. <laughs> <laughs> so are you thinking that your colleagues were thinking, we know Richard, we kind of mm -hmm. know what we're going to get here. That's the right. devil we know. <laughs> exactly, exactly, to get back to well, J.I. Packer. And they, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well played. And they didn't want it heading in another direction, they thought it could head mm -hmm. in a certain direction with you. Yeah, I think that faculty were very concerned that they had someone who valued the intellectual endeavor, that didn't want to turn a school of theology into a how-to school, that's simply right. about teaching people how to steal good sermons off the internet, mm. you, you know, uh, but, but that wanted something that was deeply formative of people, that, that it was kind of research-based teaching, that we had done the hard intellectual, the heavy lifting in order to produce the kind of skill that's rooted in depth, that, uh, that, that the formation of our students is not thin but thick. Um, hmm. in terms of how they're able to go out and then uh, you know, engage with people out of the deep resources of Christian faith and yet at the same time to be relevant and meaningful to the moment. Mm -hmm. So what is it that, like you, you talk about really enjoying, it's, it's deeper than that, right? Like that sense of calling or that you feel you're in the right place when you're teaching theology. Uh, what is it that does that for you? Why, particularly in light of the students themselves. Why does education matter? What kind of difference do you feel you're making? Yeah, I mean, education, I, when you see the eyes light up and people begin, um, you, you know, there's the sort of, uh, um, there's different moments in theological education. When students get past simply writers of book reports that are looking for mistakes that other people make, mm -hmm. when they move beyond the critical to the creative and constructive, mm. and you can see then they're not looking at the window, which is theological concepts, but looking through, through them to powerfully make sense of the world around them in ways that are compelling, imaginative, and that people would join them in living toward. Uh, you, you can see that happen in students' lives when over the course of their uh, theological education. So, so that's something that isn't necessarily, doesn't necessarily have to do with faith. 
you could be you could be teaching, not making reference to God at all or theology at all, and still see that moment in a student's eyes or understanding, which which that sense of calling to kind of any kind of education there are many different fields. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I mean, in theological education, it has to do with how, uh, the, the way I would put it, I mean, Calvin's metaphor, the spectacles of scripture, when students don't just know about the Bible, but how it shapes their subjectivity uh, to the point where they see the world in terms of these stories, where it becomes the interpretive lens for making sense of all of right. life. Uh, a man called George Lindbeck wrote a book, and he talked about how the Bible absorbs the world. Um, how do they make sense of this? The, various events that seem unconnected, but to produce a whole, a kind of imaginative whole, through a, through a baptized imagination, which is able to kind of make compelling sense of what's going on in the world just now. When you see students, I, I teach a course when they, that, that's actually the final, it's called imagination and interpretation. Not just how will you become a scribe, but how will the Bible become your lens for interpreting the world? And the final assignment is to take a big problem challenge in contemporary culture and now bracket it uh, in terms of how are you going to make Christian sense of that in terms of central Christian conviction so that it provides a kind of unique voice. I mean, the dominant strategy of mainline Protestantism, I think, has been the strategy of redundance. So we pull back the arrow, we aim it at relevance, and we hit redundance dead mm. center mm -hmm. because mm. we're engaged in the enterprise of same saying. So I say, viva la difference. How are you going to make sense of life and challenges in ways that are particularly Christian, and not just that, but particularly compelling? Uh, the most boring arguments or the most boring conversations are between people who agree about everything. Yeah, right. And so I think this is kind of interesting. How are you going to uh, provide a lens that's a little bit different, you know, but compelling images like lions and lambs lying down together? And how do you galvanize a community to live toward that world that God is always already bringing? Uh, how do you look like a citizen of that world now so that you live in tension with the world as it is because the world that you want is on the way? Do you, do you also get the sense, that, like, as you've talked about how Christian education can bring uh, hope and a better worldview and brighter eyes. Yep. Are there ways that uh, higher education, theological education, can also dampen or be a risk to faith? Have you experienced any of that in your, in your, in your time where people have sort of... Uh, the, the education has either made them so so narrow that all they mm -hmm. can believe is the facts on the page, but it doesn't hit their heart, or that they read this stuff and go, man, I just can't take this, this none of this makes sense anymore, and I'm walking away. Yeah, I'm reading a book right now on the, the importance of virtue in theological education. I mean, in theological education and other kinds of education, you could actually make a person worse by making them educated. Now they mm -hmm. have more tools at their disposal, <laughs> <laughs> uh, or you could, I think, in theological education, you can, uh, there's a current preoccupation with hermeneutics that somehow if we get the method right, we'll just know uh, all of these things or <laughs> lenses and all that. But you can also use hermeneutics to protect yourself from God. Right. Right? You, you could use... So hermeneutics being... Biblical interpretation, principles for understanding the how Bible. How to understand... How the to lenses. This is the metaphor. You know, what lens shall we wear to interpret the Bible? But in current theological education, there's a preoccupation with lenses and not with looking. Uh, you know, so right. you end up training optometrists. Uh, you know, who are just studying lenses and not looking at anything. The right. power of a particular lens is in what it enables you to see. Um, and right. it, it, as long as you keep the emphasis on seeing things and making sense. And the, the other thing that sometimes drops out of 
a kind of a school that is so close to the university is that uh, there's a trust in methodology so that things like prayer and virtue uh, can tend to be bracketed mm -hmm. in the attempt to become respectable given the kind of paradigms mm. of learning that are part of graduate education. So there's no room for something like prayer. That's sure. something that takes place apart from the academy. Sure. But Sorry, so I was say, how, how do you hold kind of those mm -hmm. tensions that in, in Christian faith, like mm -hmm. experience, prayer, these things that aren't yep. necessarily quantifiable? Yes. Uh, how do you hold those tensions and respect those mm -hmm. while still, like, I know for myself that I, I enjoy the academia. I, I enjoy that, and possibly to a fault, but how, how do you respect people who maybe the, the academic side of things is either difficult for them or they struggle to see the value in that? Yeah, I think one of the great things about studying Christian history is that you come across potential mentors. I mm -hmm. think one of the things mm -hmm. that Protestants gave up during the Reformation was the saints. We don't have a cult of the saints. But then on the other hand, if you want to win an argument and you say Dietrich Bonhoeffer did mm -hmm. it, all of a sudden he has an authority. <laughs> but I think of somebody like John Calvin, whose first book was not about the Bible. He wrote a commentary on Seneca. He was classically trained on clemency. So he had a classical education, understood sources. His Bible commentaries are brilliant, guided by classical virtues like lucid brevity. Oh, that many sermons were guided by lucid <laughs> brevity. Lucid but, brevity, write that down. But, 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 at, but, but at the same time, as he's classically trained, this is a guy who regards prayer before the reading of scripture as essential, because he thinks there's at least two problems when we don't get the Bible. Number one is we don't know enough to understand the language. So you want to know uh, how what the Greek words are. But at the same time, he says, yeah, but even when you've grown grasped all of those intellectual skills, all of that, uh, pra uh, that, that prowess as an intellectual, there's the spiritual issue that we are not uh, transparent to, that we don't always leave ourselves porous to scripture, and that we could be listening to scripture in a scholarly way mm -hmm. for the good of somebody else who needs improvement. Mm -hmm. You know, rather than, and so prayer, the invocation of the Holy Spirit, which Calvin in the liturgy puts before the reading of the Bible, prayer for illumination, which is essentially God, give us ears to hear what we often refuse to hear. Right. So, so the two are held together in people like Calvin or Aquinas. Um, I think one of the changes in modern theology is that you have people like me. I'm not a pastor of a congregation, although I preach most Sundays. Uh, classically, people were always at one and the same time professors of theology and pastors in the church. So uh, they had to hold that, hold that tension together. And now that's together. been divided is what you're saying. Now we have professional theologians, you know, academic theologians who teach, hmm. teach in university. And their connection to faith communities can be remote. Um, is there right. a temptation among that kind of community at times so professional theologians, mm -hmm. academics in, in institutions, to kind of look down upon the church in general, or is that just among some? Or it can be. It can. It there. There can be that we hold all the solutions for people, um, but mostly people who are engaged in the community know better. Martin Luther King Jr. One time, you know, a scholar but a powerful mm -hmm. preacher once said, so, uh, he said, sometimes and. Jane on her knees can get more truth than the philosopher on his tiptoes, mm -hmm. right? Because it's hard for people who regard knowledge as heroic intellectual achievement to understand knowledge as a gift, uh, right, of grace. Right. And God seems indiscriminate. You know, I mean, I had a 99-year-old grandmother who seems to me have more experience of God than me as a professionally trained theologian. Um, and that's, uh, that's, that's a kind of humbling experience. It's a different understanding of what it means to be 
to, to, to know. Um, on the other hand, somebody like C.S. Lewis will say, when people complained about some of his writings, they said, you know, when you talk about Christian faith, it seems hard and, and difficult. Why is that? He said, well, there are some aspects of Christian mm -hmm. faith that are hard right. and difficult. Right. So, you, um, Allison, you, you took a course this past summer. You audited a course here. I did. It was mm -hmm. fantastic. So you're not someone who's taken a ton of courses at theological schools? No, unfortunately. I wish I had. But yet this one you loved, and so tell us about The future is an open one, just saying. Yes, I, I, really, <laughs> I really would love to get more education. Um, and uh, the course that, that I took this summer was with Willie James Jennings, and I'd really like it if you bring him back, because mm -hmm. that was fantastic. And there's part where... On the Book of Acts. Yes, so. and it, it opened up the Book of Acts in a way that I've never understood it mm. that way before. I found it fascinating, and I think Willie James Jennings is a very engaging and like just fantastic speaker. But I was in that course, too, and he the, the things you're talking about, Richard, mm -hmm. he, I thought, Allison, you'd probably say the same thing, brought together well. I mean, he, he started each class, which at, at a university and a theological institution even, you don't always hear this, he started each class with kind mm -hmm. of like a devotional reading that he'd clearly prepared, but that came from the text of Acts that he was going to be looking at, mm -hmm. and then uh, and concluded that with a, with a prayer. But then his treatment of the book of Acts was something that was uh, highly, like, I, I hesitate to use the word relevant, but it's something that made great sense in the questions of our day. Sure. It was very, very hopeful. It, as someone who's been a minister for years and years, it opened the book up for me as well. Mm -hmm. But I know how much you liked it. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And one of the things that, that I found was very interesting was the amount of people in the class that were in their 70s and their 80s and they were still wanting to learn and some of them didn't come from a terribly academic background and yet they saw a value in being there and it, it was really nice because i think there there are times where there's a, an assumed and sometimes an actual amount of like intellectual snobbery that ends up happening where people who know all the things yeah. make sure that the people who don't know that they don't know all the things that's why we speak in latin <laughs> <laughs> but historically in the church it education has been used as a sense of control like i think of the the ancient church where i'm like well they wouldn't let people like they, they couldn't read the bible in their own languages because to have you know the the normal common person the read the bible that's just dangerous. Yeah. Yeah, one of the things that happens in the Reformation, of course, is the democratization of theological yeah. engagement. When right. you translate the Bible into the vernacular, into the common language of yeah. the people, whether it's English, German, French, now all of a sudden nobody has a monopoly on biblical interpretation. We're going to have to discuss this and people are involved in their own uh, theological education. Certainly uh, rates of literacy in Geneva go up and Scotland sort of leads Europe in education because in order to be a pious Christian you've got to read. Right. You get an English translation of the Bible, the Geneva Bible with chapters and verses. Why? Because we're going to work this neighborhood together and we need common reference points. Yeah. And you get study Bibles and so there's a kind of uh, there's an openness now to, to involving people in, in the life of the church and, and around education. And Calvin's whole project in Geneva is how to restore the reading of scripture to all God's people. So it's a shared endeavor mm -hmm. and it doesn't just belong to the experts. But yet it, it doesn't dismiss the, the importance of that intellectual consideration. Ken, you and I were speaking recently and I think you mentioned that kind of sense of 
that people say, well, all I need is the Bible. Right. I don't need theological education. Mm. There's, there, there is within it's, the church. Oh, sure. There's a, a, a skepticism, a doubt, a, a hesitancy or, yeah. a, against the intellectual. Mm-hmm. All I need is the Bible and experience. Yeah. But it's interesting because Calvin sets up the program to do it, right? So, so somebody's in charge. Somebody has gifts for leadership. The other thing that's interesting about the Geneva Bible, which I show to my students when we talk about the authority of Scripture, when it's all translated in 1560, it's published as the English Bible. Inside the front cover is not the table of contents for the Bible. It's the shorter catechism that Calvin has written for Geneva. <laughs> so whatever he meant by sola scriptura, scripture alone, uh, he didn't was mean... Not sola. He <laughs> didn't mean that you come to this unaided, that you right. need to be taught what to look for, how to follow the plot when you read the Bible. And a catechism is really helpful. You're shaped by the Apostles' Creed, which is sort of Cole's notes on the Bible, right? right. What to look for as mm-hmm. you go through the story. A Calvin said, I would never have known God as my father were it not for Mother Church. You need to be taught to be a reader. Mm-hmm. Uh, contemporary people like Stanley Hauervas, an important Duke theologian, uh, he, he has issues with the Gideons. He thinks you shouldn't give people Bibles. You shouldn't be trusted alone with the Bible. You need to be taught to be a, 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 a good reader of the Bible, that you need to be a traditioned person. Difficulty is modern folks tend to think of tradition um, unambiguously as a negative thing. In fact, we have inherited the tradition of being against tradition now. Right. <laughs> so yeah. you you would then, in the church in general, though, there is, that Ken mentions, there's sometimes like theological education is suspect. You mentioned before, Ken, you know, we've talked about what's dangerous about education, and there's that stereotype, but it, it is pointing to something often that is, mm-hmm. is real for some people, mm-hmm. that a young student, uh, someone who seems to have a call to some kind of religious vocation in a church community decides, I'm going to go off to theological school, and then there's a number of people who say, oh, don't do that, because the sure way to stop believing in God is go get a theological education mm-hmm. or something, that there's, mm-hmm. the, that there's this danger. So you, what I'm thinking of, you must hear sermons at churches or whether it's something you see on television or something. Hopefully not ones you give. You're seeing, <laughs> but you're seeing someone open scripture, Christian scripture in a way that you're going, oh no, that just is not what that means. Sure. Or it's the opposite. How do you feel when that happens? What kind of thing do you? Sure. So, so I mean, I would say first of all, theological education is dangerous. Uh, because the subject matter of theology is God, and that's dangerous. That could that could requisition your life. That could take you in directions that are unexpected. You'll start making decisions for things that aren't about money and social hierarchy. So it's dangerous. It will put you at odds with the world in which you live, right? Because yeah. the subject matter is God. And yeah, I've heard irresponsible uh, readings of the Bible all the time. And so that makes me want to redouble my effort yeah. as, a, as a professor. On the other hand, I should say, I have heard a lot of fantastic That's sermons right. of people who have done their homework and who don't wear their learning forward. Um, sort of like a good architect. I mean, if you saw everything an architect done, they hadn't finished, they wouldn't have finished the building. Right, mm-hmm. And it's the same with theological learning. I've listened to masterful sermons that are not a display of learning, but the learning provides the substructure for a wonderfully relevant and engaging sermon. Um, it's an act of humility to wear your learn, mm-hmm. not, not wear your learning forward, but to wear proclamation forward mm-hmm. and to trust that, that God will use what is said that's deeply instructed by the grammar of the text that you've studied, but doesn't go into great detail about your own expertise because that could only detract from, uh, uh, lack transparency to what the message is about. So in that, you probably, I would imagine, and knowing you, I can, I can think, I can mm-hmm. maybe name some, but um, 
you would think of theological heroes for you who've modeled that kind of oh, sure. approach. Who would some of those I be? mean, Carl Barth. I mean, his deliverance to the captives, right? Yeah. But, but Barth preaching in the prison. Uh, here's a world-class theologian, perhaps the greatest theologian of the 20th century, and what does he spend his spare time doing? Preaching in the Soffenville prison to prisoners, right? And sa who, he says things in sermons like, there's a captivity that's greater than this house. You could be in here and be free. You could be out there and be in prison. Mm -hmm. I mean, ju just his sense of who he's talking to, you know, that he begins and ends with prayer, and this is his world of friendships. He hasn't he hasn't lost a sense of being connected to the human condition, and yet he trusts that the gospel speaks to the human condition and, and brings that uh, to, to that set of circumstances. I love uh, Will Williman. Uh, here's, Will Williman is a world-class scholar, but he wears his learning lightly. Um, he's able to tell a story, not about himself, but of, about other people. Um, you, you listen to Will preach, and it's not like he's building a bridge. It's not linear. It's sort of like he's knitting a sweater, and you don't know what he's done until the end when he holds up the sweater, and you say, oh, okay, now I get it. Um, he, he's a wonderful communicator um, who is, uh, I've told him in the past that he preaches like somebody with tenure. He seems unafraid to say what the gospel is all about. And to, I, I think um, that one of the liabilities of preaching now is that oftentimes people think in their preaching that the troubling distance is the distance between a first century text and the world in which we live, and if you're really smart, you can update this dusty hmm. text. Hmm. Will has taught me that the real gap that we need to worry about is between what the Bible says and what we do. That's the gap that ought to trouble us. And that I've learned from Will that preaching the Bible is relevant. I mean, when you read it most weeks, you think, oh, golly, am I going to say that? Uh, and that the, the <laughs> preaching virtue is more about courage than it is about your, uh, you know, kind of hermeneutic, interpretive gymnastics and how you're going to uh, demonstrate your learning by updating this text. Mm -hmm. So uh, you sound like a very hopeful person in general, and even in the ways that um, you're discussing modern church and like where do you find hope in the church and hope in in education i mean i find hope in jesus christ that that's it um, he's risen he's present he has real agency in the world um, to come back to the education a bit because it's connected is that oftentimes biblical scholars imagine themselves to be the agents of jesus identification so they will take the text and identify Jesus. But if Jesus is risen from the dead, Jesus is the agent of his own identification. Jesus co-opts this text to speak of himself. Um, I find that incredibly hopeful, that hmm. th there's a presence and power always already at work. It's not all up to me. It, God is at work in the world. Um, two things that I find especially hopeful. One would be the development of some forms of missional theology. In which are based on the book of Acts, which says that the church is not initiating God's program. God is initiating God's program, and the church is always catching up to where God is already, already is. There are movements, humanizing movements in our culture that I think are born of God. Mm -hmm. And if you know the Bible, you could spot God's MO if you saw it you know, God's modus operandi. The Bible teaches you what it looks like when God's at work, so you could spot where God is at work now. Um, I found that has been really helpful for me to kind of think of 
to, to get out of that mindset where it's us and them. Good things are happening at the world and Christians need to look for partners that we can work together with. Um, and they're all over the place, people of goodwill. Karl Barth says, because of our unreserved commitment to Jesus Christ, we have provisional commitment mm -hmm. to all kinds of humanizing movement. Hey, that looks like the kind of thing Jesus would do. Let's mm. get on board. Hey, that looks like the kind of thing. And that takes a kind of sanctified imagination. That takes an imagination deeply formed by the teachings of Holy Scripture, so you could spot God's work if you saw it. But that is a different perspective than many religious kind of ways of seeing the world bring to the table in, in the sense that you mentioned Bart and Willeman. Mm -hmm. um, and I know like the you're talking about the provisional stuff with Bart, this call to work with, I think he said provisional partners or something, right? That mm -hmm. there is mm -hmm. that God's work is bigger than just our small kind of mm -hmm. corner. Uh, as someone who grew up in kind of Baptist circles and stuff, I think you you have yes. a Baptist background as well. It's not necessarily the tone you pick up in terms of relation to the world. There is there is kind of a bleak sense of everything, and thank God that a few of us can be rescued, is kind of if you were to put yes. it really at base terms. And both, certainly Bart, is someone who's identified as a cheerful theologian and yes. has, has hope in terms of where things are headed. I think the same would be said for Willimon. Mm -hmm. That this hope is something that is different than simply like a few of us will be rescued from this sure. terror. And it's not optimism either. It's uh, not saying, you know, that just left to themselves, things will turn out okay. It's that God is at work in the world. God is a real agent in human history. I mean, I think both on the left and the right in theological circles, on the right, it tends to be Jesus belongs to us, like we have proprietary mm -hmm. rights to Jesus or something. Oh. And, and then, you know, only things that happen according to the official card-carrying Jesus movement have legitimacy oh and the goodness. rest are pretenders. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have a, actually a gospel text about that, right? Where Jesus' disciples say, hey, Jesus, you want us to shut those guys down? Uh, they're not part of our group. And Jesus, man, he just gives this kind of wide, whoever's not against us is for us. You think, whoa does that ever lead to looking for partners? Mm -hmm. Whoever mm -hmm. is not against us is for us. This is God's work of healing if people are being healed uh, because God is a God of healing. So, so I think that that's mm -hmm. really important to have that text. On the other hand, on the left, sometimes there's an attempt to make God a stranger to God's own world, to exile mm -hmm. God from agency in the world. Like, uh, God could only ever appear in the world by special appearance, you know, because we mm. divide the world up. There's this realm called super. Yeah, it's like so exceptional, yeah, it never happens. Yeah, yeah. And then there's the world called natural. It goes along just fine, and now and again, God interrupts things. God, that's artificial. God is always already involved in the world. Super, God is not outside of nature. Uh, Jason Biasi will say, you know, to say God intervenes in the world is kind of like saying, when I go down in the morning and make coffee in the house, I'm intervening in my kitchen. It's my bloody kitchen. <laughs> You know, and, 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 and it's God's bloody world, right? So, so God is always already active in the world. I think the other thing that makes me incredible, incredibly hopeful is, and, and it takes us out of these polarizations. I think theology for a long time was caught up in this notion of here's the truth and we'll deliver it, and we have all of it and they have none of it. Right. Um, you know, missional theology has taught us that the church doesn't have a mission. God's mission has a church, hmm. right? That's huge. God's mission has a church. We get caught up in the work God is doing. There is no proactive activity in the church. It's all reactive to what God is doing. So the, the truthiness of things, you know, we're going to deliver. And then mainline Protestantism is all into kind of duty and good this and good that, moralism. 
it ends up being. And I think the movement of theology from the true to the good to the beautiful has been a way of bringing groups together. I mean, scripture entices us with visions of the world as it might be one day, lions and lambs lying down together. So how do you live toward that when you, when you occupy a world in which lambs are a lion's lunch? Um, so that tensive piece of a possible world that God will bring, it doesn't lead you to give up. It says, golly, I want that world. So how do you stoke your imagination in ways that lead and embody a life? That that's not legalism now, and it's not all truthy and all, all about mm -hmm. being better than other people, but it's how do I adopt the kind of virtues and aspirations that would take me toward the possible world that is always already on the way. Okay. Um, I have just a couple more things to ask. I don't know if you guys can. Yep. One is, so when I was doing my theological education and of course being raised in the Baptist tradition and some Mennonite and, mm -hmm. and working in Plymouth Brethren churches and the, you know, scripture had to be spoken about in certain ways. And one of the ways that you could categorize kind of, this might be back to Packer's comment, mm -hmm. you could categorize people who were on the wrong side was if they thought the wrong thing in terms of, you know, do you take the Bible literally? Uh, what about inerrancy? What about, um, do you have any reflections on, on that? Like if, yeah. if someone said that they didn't think that, if, if someone said, no, I think the Bible, like they had to accept inerrancy or else they were in the wrong camp. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I often find myself um, with more helpful things to say if I pause for a moment and ask, what are people trying to get with that, with that doctrine of inerrancy? I think what they're trying to get, I mean, it's interesting historically that the doctrine of inerrancy in Protestantism comes about at the same time as papal fallibility mm. in the oh. Catholic Church. Why? Because the world is shifting. We're moving out of a Newtonian world of, of certainties to an Einsteinian world of relativities. And mm. I think inerrancy is the attempt on the part of fundamentalist Christianity to fight the, the first science the second scientific revolution on the basis of the first, first. right? So, so inerrancy is, it doesn't help because at the end of the day, you still have errant interpreters. So right. uh, then you kind of need the Pope, uh, anyhow. <laughs> uh, but, but, but I think biblical inerrancy ascribes to the Bible attributes that belong to God. My great worry about it is that how it diminishes God. It wants right. to, make a literary property of God's action by means of the Bible. Um, we pray before we read scripture because God makes the Bible work. It's never, it's, it's never just fine literature at work here. Mm. God uh, takes this witness to Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, and makes it effective for faith and the power of the Holy Spirit. When you talk about inerrancy, it's interesting. All that theology gets bracketed out and you ascribe to a text Right. Divine activity. For the reformers, when they talked about how scripture was sufficient, necessary, and uh, sufficient and necessary and effective in all matters pertaining to salvation, they were talking about God's relationship to the text, which allowed this text to, uh, to they accomplish. They weren't saying the text accomplished that. Exactly. Yeah. They, they left that, that the text is something, it's an instrument that God uses. I mean, that, that's what it says in that passage in, in, in Timothy. All scripture is theonoustos, God breathed. Why? And so it's useful for training, reproof, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's funny. It's an instrumental understanding of inspiration, that it's God breathed for the sake of its usefulness to the life of God's people. Otherwise, you're going to have a sort of verbal icon 
right? But you, you yourself have experienced this. You told me, mm -hmm. you know that story you told yeah, me? Yeah. Um, oh, yes, I've, asked, I've been asked by people, do you have a high or low view of Scripture? And I said, well, what do you mean? And they said, do you believe in inerrancy? I said, no, 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 I have a high view of Scripture. <laughs> um, but, uh, I mean, but that is, then you put yourself in the, in the dangerous spot if they could say, okay, well, I can't trust that guy now. Yeah, I mean... But you know that game is already there. They wouldn't yeah. be asking you the question if they did trust you. Probably. You see, I live in a world where I'm part of the radical middle, right? I read people like Augustine who says, you know, the problem with biblical interpreters, on the one hand, you take what is meant literally and you take it figuratively. Right. But Augustine covers the other side of the equation. He says, then, on the left, you take figuratively what you're supposed to take literally. Right. right. So you have to guard both of those sides of the equation. Sometimes the Bible means what it says. Um, you know, take up your cross and follow me. Uh, you know, the, 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 uh, we, we, we switch in and out when Jesus says to the rich person, you know, get, liquidate your assets and follow me. Yeah. Or if you want to really learn about Bible commentators, go to the passage in Acts where it says, and, you know, they listened to the apostles' teaching, et cetera, et cetera. And then the last bit, and they shared everything in common. And then you're going to learn a lot about biblical commentators because their basic job will be, don't worry, folks, your stuff is safe. Right. right. <laughs> this isn't required of you. So there's right. no biblical literalist, really. There no, we're always... I mean, I would say that your expectations of the Bible and how to interpret it ought to be formed by the kind of literature that's in front of you. The problem is we come too fully armed. We, we're so influenced by modern science that we want a just-the-facts-please account, and very often it's not a just-the-facts-please account. I mean, if Christ is not risen, our faith is in vain. Paul seems to think that something had to happen for that to mean what it means. On the other hand, I mean, do you take the parable of the prodigal son literally? Did this have to happen for right. this to deliver its message? So mm. you have to modulate your interpretive approach based on what's in front of you. And if you come too fully loaded, you'll only just find your own prejudices confirmed. So I, I would argue that we really need to see what kind of document the Bible is and then modulate our expectations. That that's the authority of scripture over my interpretive disposition. Right? Whereas some people want us, you know, you want to violate the book of Genesis by saying this is somehow a blow by blow account about right. days before there ever was days. Yeah. And, you know, Methuselah's day. Yeah. I mean, this guy lived a thousand years. So, which day are we talking about? It's a kind of fluid notion. Mm -hmm. and, and what happens is we think we know what counts as true. We borrow that from our culture and then we apply it to the Bible, which is hugely disrespectful yeah. to the Bible. Oh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, okay. I, I, oh, I was just going to say, like, I, well, I was thinking this in context of the conversation that began our our uh, time together with the there, there's a tension I think that sometimes exists between the the intellectual, the proud. I grew up in the uh, evangelical Anglican Church, sort of the the the, the uh, snooty we got it we got it right sort of uh, attitude. And one of the doubts was always on things like experience. So if you wanted to understand the Bible, it was, or if you wanted to, to, to live or have a good theology, it was based on reason and, and scripture and, and that. But, uh, and there's a third. Uh, experience. Ex no, no, experience was not allowed. So experience was, was reason, suspicious. theology, and, and, and scripture. Mm -hmm. but, but you certainly didn't use experience. That was, mm -hmm. that, because that's. Subjective. Um, it's subjective, and you can go down a rabbit hole. And just because you experience God by walking around a, a weird maze doesn't mean that God was actually in that weird maze. So we're, you, you can't use weird mazes. Um, 
uh, and, and on the other side, I've, I've been in churches where it's, it's all experience and we are going to reject reason and scripture and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, and it kind of makes me think about the, the conversation at the beginning of, of, you know, what makes a good movie? What makes good cinema? Is it, is it the, the arrogance of the, the educated saying, uh, the, the, the Coppola's in that saying, those aren't real movies, those aren't, that's not real cinema, you, you superhero Spider-Man fan, versus the other saying, well, what you make makes no sense to me, it's not relevant to me, I just want to go for escapism. And so we end up with churches where uh, some of the biggest churches in some ways have, like the biggest movies, have no depth, no value, not no value, but there's no depth, there's no Christ, like, it's, it's Joel Stein versus J.I. Well, it's more like Packer positive thinking, thing. self-help, make yes. me feel good. Yes, yes. And how does that fit into Christian education and, 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 and that tradition? That's the other thing. Sorry, tradition, reason, and scripture. That's, that's how you get to know God experiences. That tradition was the one I forgot, which for an Anglican, I probably shouldn't have forgotten that one. Yeah. No, I mean, th this, is, this is an important question, right? Because um, it goes to how a number of things are held together in the formation of people. Um, yeah, so I'm just, uh, I'm thinking about my own tradition, right? I'm, I'm Presbyterian and are, we're, we're suspicious of religious experience. I mean, even the word enthusiasm, <laughs> right? It comes into being as a way Negative that word. the Church of England maligned yeah. the Wesleys. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a, there's a church actually in, uh, in England, uh, where a priest, there's a plaque up to a priest who retired during the time of the Wesleys, and he successfully kept the Wesleys' influence out of this congregation. And the plaque goes something like I was, to, the Archbishop of Canterbury told this story at one point, and he said, you know, it says, to so-and-so, who faithfully ministered here for over 40 years without a trace of enthusiasm. <laughs> oh my gosh, wow. <laughs> Um, uh, you know, th there is a there is a properly a concern about enthusiasm, which is uninformed, which is right. sheer kind of a pep rally kind of thing. But I mean, to know the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the God who comes amongst us, gets into our skin and under our skin to save our skin. I mean, if that can't enthuse you, you're mm -hmm. dead. Right. Um, th this is good news, but but it ought to be enthused by something that's true. Um, and, and that's different than, you know, some self-help kinds of uh, domestications of the gospel. I mean, that succeed largely because they just reflect the culture back to people. There's no mm. prophetic edge in any of that. You never hear a challenge. You never hear uh, an upset. You never hear a word against the culture. And never just for the sake of being against, but in the interests of life. That's not good enough. Don't settle for that. That's selfish preoccupation. I mean, remember, we live in a culture in which the seven deadly sins are now, six of them are medical conditions, and one is a virtue, pride, right? Mm. So, so the category of sin has been undone, and we've done nobody a favor. I mean, we've basically erased their agency to, to, to wonder about or to decide for anything better. We've just medicalized the whole thing. So um, I think wow. that, that part of the good news That's of the great. gospel yeah. is to call people to human fullness. Don't settle for too little too late. Um, I remember visiting a woman who was dying in the hospital, and she says to me, Richard, I could not have got through this without God. Immediately, her daughter, who felt very uncomfortable by that statement, mm -hmm. said something like, isn't she a strong person? 
huh? Uh, that's not what she said. <laughs> no. And that's the modern world, right? That we're constantly translating language about God into language about ourselves because we're a therapeutic culture. That's mm. where I think God, Karl Barth is a bit of a medication for us. Barth says over and over again, theology is not anthropology in a really loud voice. Theology mm. is about God. Right? And that's the gift the church has to offer. Sometimes that is relief. Sometimes it is a challenge. It puts you at odds. But you never want to be at odds just for the sake of being yeah. at odds. It's being at odds in the interest of life. God has more for you than that. Mm. And I think that's a great note on which to sort of... I've got one more question. Oh, do you? Yeah. Because I would just think that, that, that for the uh, sake of I'm life not, is I'm not saying hopeful. it's going to take us higher because that was fantastic. But... Uh, we're on a university campus here, and whether it's this school here or I was reading an article about Princeton Theological Seminary yesterday, um, you know, many universities, as obviously most of us know, were, were founded by religious kind of background. Um, and yet now on university campuses, for the most part, a theological seminary is kind of off and off on its own. A um, couple of things there is, so I'll ask you about your engagement with the larger campus, but then secondly, or firstly, however you want to answer, what do you do with this sense that some can have, I'm not saying all, but that they would look at somebody like yourself or like religious people as they would categorize it in general and say, well, I can't really listen to him because like, well, they believe in Noah's Ark or they believe that like a guy was inside of a whale for a couple sure. days or they, um, that this whole endeavor is so kind of anti-intellectual and so they might otherwise engage with you, but because you know this just stuff doesn't make sense, how do you kind of yeah. navigate through that? Yeah, I mean, just to briefly answer the second one and then come back to it, yeah. well, it turns out everybody's capable of prejudice. Mm. Um, and you know, part of the reason, I think it's a gift to have theological schools on the campus of a major university is that major universities are interested in diversity, we're part of that diversity mm -hmm. and happy to belong. Uh, the good news for us at the University of British Columbia is that the current president of the school, uh, of the university, is a Christian who's also a biologist. He's top of his game in biology. That's a Santa Ono. Santa Ono. Yeah. He's an outstanding president yeah. and he loves Jesus. I mean, he, he spoke at the Vancouver prayer breakfast and people asked him to speak about his spiritual life. And he said something like, well, I was at McGill University in a doctoral program. I had a real trouble with alcohol and was drunk a lot of the time, had thoughts of suicide, and some friends rescued me from that. I'd never been into a church. They took me to a church, and I met Jesus, and he saved my life. It was quiet in that room. <laughs> but, but he's a guy who doesn't, doesn't ascribe to cartoon versions of Christianity. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's real depth about the, the person. A part of it is, you know, media tends to play up the, the extreme versions of Christianity. Uh, the motto of our school here is that we are called by God to form and educate thoughtful, engaged, and generous Christians. And we've chose those, that language deliberately to avoid slogans. We said thoughtful, not critical, because we want people who could also build things. We said generous and not inclusive, because inclusive has become a kind of slogan, generous and, and engaged, that we're not just teaching people to sit around in armchairs, we're teaching people to kind of engage with the world, that it's education to do something with. 
Um, my experience here at the campus of the University of British Columbia is I find Christians all over the place, that you can work on the basis of friendship, that people are just looking for a better, better example of a mm -hmm. follower of mm -hmm. Jesus mm -hmm. than these yeah. kind of wretched people on television <laughs> who kind of condemn everybody, right? right? Yeah. And who are our worst Or who say nothing. Who's, yeah, who say nothing. Or who kind of complete on the right, it's kind of they're against everything. And on the left, right. you know, you would wonder, it's just a kind of bad, version of secularity. They're just completely secularized and they don't have anything to say that people wouldn't know better from elsewhere. So, so you ask why Christianity? It's the strategy of redundance. So I think, you know, kind of thoughtful conversations okay. in which there's genuine learning on both sides. I've learned from other people. I had a conversation with a historian the other day. He said, I can't believe in Jesus. He says, because you people have no evidence. And I said, well, the problem with you historians is you say, okay, we're going to decide what counts as evidence and then tell everybody else they don't have any. Yeah. Got his attention. <laughs> and we had an interesting conversation yeah. with that. So, I mean, I also go to West Van uh, to a group, that, that maybe to close with this, but it's a group of people who are mostly retired business people and uh, former university professors, most of whom are atheists, and they brought me in for a good grilling, but they weren't used to somebody who fought back. Now they invite me all the time and send me with atheist cookies to bring back to the school <laughs> for the students. Um, but, but I think a lot can be done on the basis of non-adversarial friendship, yeah. mm -hmm. and that we too often begin uh, expecting that people will be against us. Maybe they're just looking for somebody um, maybe the parable, I was, remember I was a guest preacher at a church once. I'd park in the parking lot, and I couldn't find a door that wasn't unlocked. And apparently everybody who went to that church knew that there was one around the front that you go to. I sort of think that's people's experience with Christianity. They want to ask a question, but they're not sure who they could talk to that won't be deeply offended by their right. maybe unformed question, and so they don't know the way in. And maybe it's about kind of intellectual hospitality to people, to kind of maybe even help them ask the question that they don't quite have yeah. yet, so that you could address w the question. Without that judgment, that yeah. it's not just yeah. that yeah. you're yeah. kind of, as a Christian, you might be thinking, oh, they're going to yeah. look down on me. Yeah. It's that many people think you're, you're entering the room, yes. kind of thinking that they're all yeah. terrible. Yeah. Or Even in the classroom, students ask me questions all the time. And I say, mark this down on your notes, the date and the time, because I'm going to say it right now. I don't know. Right. I'm going to have to look into that, because you won't hear that often from right. a professor. Mm -hmm. Oh, thank you so much. Yes, thank, thank you. you. Mm -hmm. So we had have had a fantastic time here, and I think uh, addressing well this, this realm of uh, intellect and education in terms of that larger context of hope. The way you speak, Richard, provides us with great hope that what you're doing here, we see the numbers, right? We see that enrollment's up and these various things, and those are fantastic. Yeah, I but, agree with Will Williman, who said, because Jesus is risen from the dead, we are prisoners of hope. Mm. Wow. That's it. And we can hear that in the way you speak and in how this place is being run. Uh, and so we, we uh, really pray blessing upon what's happening here and in your life and uh, also that we would continue in this kind of endeavor with these kinds of conversations. Thank you. And so thank you for taking the time and welcoming us here. And thank you to Ken for opening up the rector's cupboard and engaging in the conversation as well. And also to Allison and to our producer, Ricky T. Calhoun, um, faithfully producing. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you.